You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. Delighted as always to have you with us. Such a thrill, this guest on this episode, as it is our first Vietnam-era veteran to join the podcast. Not only that, he served 20 years in the Marine Corps. He has a bronze star with V for Valor device. He has three Purple Hearts. And you probably know him most recently for his role in several popular military movies that have come out in recent years. It is Dale Dye joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Dale, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Mark. It's uh, it's uh, a great pleasure to talk to your audience. I uh, hope we can expound on some things here. Well, certainly, uh, there's a lot to get to, uh, beginning with your military career. As I just mentioned, our first Vietnam veteran uh, who's on the podcast, and truthfully, we've been it's been hard to find Vietnam vets who are willing to talk about their experience, who are willing to share the things that they went through. Um, but before we get to some of that and, and why you're so willing to talk as opposed to some others may not be, how did your military career start? Well, um, I, uh, I had gone to military schools uh, most of my uh, young life through uh, the last years of grade school and, and all of high school. And I went to Missouri Military Academy, and I had, I had hopes of going on to the Naval Academy in Annapolis. Uh, unfortunately, I spent more time uh, playing ball and chasing girls than I did with the books. <laughs> and and I, uh, I failed... I failed the exam to get into uh, Annapolis, not once, but several times. And I was, I was kind of at a loss in those days. Um, there wasn't a great deal of scholarship money around, and I certainly didn't qualify for any uh, academic scholarships. Uh, and so I was kind of at a loss, and um, I, had, uh, I had been privileged to march in President Kennedy's uh, inauguration parade uh, as a military school cadet in uh, – in the uh, early 1960s, and I, I recall distinctly uh, on one wet, snowy evening uh, in St. Louis, uh, sitting on a curb, and I thought about it, and I remembered uh, what he had to say, and, and the thing that he had to say that stuck with me so distinctly was, uh, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. And and on that evening, I walked down the street a, a couple of ways, uh, really wondering what the hell I was going to do with my life. And uh, I saw this poster, uh, this recruiting poster that was sitting out in front of the U.S. Post Office in downtown St. Louis. And it had this Marine in dress blues and wasn't much verbiage there. He was just this rock-jawed, uh, great-looking guy uh, in blues, and he had his finger pointed out. And it said, uh, ready. And uh, I looked at it and I said, you know, by God, I think I am. And uh, the next morning I went inside and enlisted in the United States Marine Corps. That's incredible because, I mean, Vietnam was on its way when you enlisted in January of 1964. It wasn't like nothing was going on and you were just doing this for yourself. We were already in a conflict that was brewing. Was any of that in the back of your mind when you decided to enlist? No, I never heard of Vietnam. Never heard of the place. Um, and uh, and and you know, if if it was there, it was on you know page fourteen of the St. Louis Post Dispatch. Uh, I I really I had no 
inkling that you know I might wind up in combat. I just I just wanted to get in there and join a club, uh, be something more than that guy wandering around on the streets. And uh, and so uh, and I, I wanted you know I knew the military because I'd been in schools uh, for you know something like seven years at that point. Um, wearing an ROTC uniform. So I, I said, you know, I, I want a tough, I want a tough club. And the, um, the Marine Corps was it. So, uh, no, I, I had never heard of Vietnam. Uh, and in fact, hadn't really heard about it much at all until I got out of boot camp. And what was the boot camp experience like for you? Did you find that it was giving you everything that you thought you would have? Well, um, think full metal jacket. Um, because in those days, that's what Marine Corps boot camp was like. It was very physical, uh, very demeaning. Uh, the, the whole purpose was we're going to break you now because if you break now, uh, we don't want you anywhere near us in combat. And, um, and I got that. I, I philosophically understood that, um, the, that, that part of it was tough on me. I mean, uh, it, it was physically brutal. Uh, but it was designed to be, and I understood the philosophy of it. And uh, like all young Marines, I, I patterned, you know, I patterned immediately on my drill instructors. And uh, and um, so I I got through it uh, without without too much blood spilled and without too much strain. Uh, it was 13 weeks in those days. And um, once I was out, I was ready to go to work. Well, work came very quickly as uh, a year later, in 1965, you had ended up in Vietnam for the first time of your three deployments, as I said at the outset. What was that first experience like? What were you told before you left? Not much. Uh, we, were, we were actually on, uh, on Okinawa and, uh, and loaded up on ships, and we saw live ammunition being loaded, and that was a clue. Um, and then we, we went down and, and steamed off the Tangent Peninsula, which essentially is was the extent of that, because I had done a little more than six months already in my overseas tour on Okinawa. And um, about Christmas time, uh, they sent me home. So it was not a big deal at all. Um, you know, we we heard about, you know, little little Asian guys in black pajamas running around in conical hats and and. Um, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't until later, really, um, when I had changed my MOS, my military occupational specialty, and got ready to go for my second tour that that the whole thing that this was really a war and and we weren't playing here uh, dawned on me. And that was certainly true when I arrived in '67 uh, and led up into Tet '68. Um, where I I was with the Fifth uh, Marines at that time, and and uh, we fought in Hue, and that was a ball buster. That was a meat grinder, and um, and and that that brought it all home to me in a hurry. Well, Mark Bowden, who chronicled uh, Way 1968 in his latest book, was also a guest in the podcast, and uh, he's one of the more notable military writers, author of Black Hawk Down, and you know he told us a lot about that particular battle and, and how much it really. Uh, as far as the influence and the way people viewed Vietnam had a lot to do with it uh, here at home. But for people who are in the whole thing and in the whole mix, I mean, you obviously don't care about any of that because you have bigger concerns to deal with. That second deployment, as you said, uh, you know, the whole thing became real. What was the first thing about it that you remember being so much different? Well, uh, there, there were a couple of things. 
in 67, we were beginning to see large influxes of conventional NVA, uh, North Vietnamese Army regiments. Uh, I mean, the, the days of the, the little guy in the conical hat and the black pajamas and, you know, World War II weapons was over. Uh, we, we were seeing massive influx of guys who didn't, who didn't hit and run. They wanted to stay and fight. Um, and so I, I knew immediately the character of the war had changed. Um, and then uh, I was up at a place called Fubai, and uh, uh, we got the word that uh, eight miles up the road, eight miles up Highway 1, uh, which is the main north-south access road uh, in Vietnam, um, that there was this um, major deal going on in Hue, uh, which was the ancient imperial, uh, the ancient capital of the Annamese emperors, uh, uh, and 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 really had been sort of a tourist destination, you know, a kind of a, a backwater R and R site. Um, and um, I said, well, what the hell? That's interesting. And you know, climbed on the trucks with the with the reinforcements going up. And by the time we got there and took a look at this place, I mean, it was a, a city. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it wasn't Chicago or St. Louis or New York, but it was a major city. And uh, and across the river from the south side where I arrived was this ancient one-kilometer-square citadel that, you know, reeked of, of you know, uh, Connecticut Yankee and King Nguyen's court and uh, – and we were going to have to take that once we got to South Side. And and the the interesting thing to me, the, the shocker, and I think to all of us who fought in Hawaii, the shocker was that we had been trained to fight in the jungles, uh, you know, ambush, counter ambush, uh, meeting engagements, um, long range patrols, uh, dense triple canopy rainforest and that sort of thing. And here we were. Uh, in the middle of this relatively modern city um, with weapons, you know, the, the NBA had taken the entire place and, uh, and, and every round that was fired was triple jeopardy because not only it didn't have to hit you, it just had to hit some walls or rocks or, or fences around you and, and the, the, the uh, shrapnel capacity was tripled so you could get killed by getting missed wow. and and here we were having to go through these these buildings uh with no no training on how to do it at all really um and and just winkle them right out of there and they were you know they, the defender always has the advantage and things like that and uh, it rapidly turned into a, a, a genuine meat grinder a really a really bloody fight, and I think it was a shock to all of us. Well, and and Tet in and of itself, and way lasted over the course of weeks. I mean, it wasn't just like a one or two day thing. Were you there for all of it, or were you just was way just a, a one day or two day engagement for you, and then you were out of there? No, I uh, I I was I managed to get in and out a couple of times uh, as far as Pubai, which was eight miles uh, down the road, but um, I was in it. For the long haul, uh, along with uh, some buddies of mine, uh, all of them mentioned in Mark's book, um, and uh, and I went from the south side, which was brutal, um, and then I dropped to another battalion, which was going in on the north side to attack the citadel. So I was there almost uh, throughout the entire fight. 
Dale, you know, in your bio, it says that you survived 31 major combat operations. Is there any consistent theme in how you were able to survive all of those? Well, um, it depends on what you mean by survive, I guess. Um, I was there on those operations, and, uh, um, you know, I learned I learned very quickly that um, very often aggressiveness is, is your best friend. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I went along and I tried to understand what the mission was and, and tried to support it in every way I could. Uh, I decided, um, you know, shortly after way, uh, that you, the, the real key is to, uh, is not to be fearless uh, because God knows I was plus four pucker factor most of the time, but, uh, <laughs> But you, you, you really have to learn how to manage that fear. Uh, you have to know how to uh, suppress it. Um, you have to know how to deal with it. And when you do that, uh, you begin to think a little more clearly. Um, you begin to, you're, you're able to manage the adrenaline surge uh, that I think everybody feels when the first round pops by your ear. Um, and and I think I think I just took that experience, um, which which began to build and 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 sort of multiply as I went through more and more of these actions, uh, and and I think I just became more professional about it. I I just figured it was uh, the nature of the beast, and I was in the belly of the beast uh, for the duration or until they killed me, and and so. Uh, I had to learn to manage fear, and, and that's kind of what I did. You know, Dale, somebody who fought in Iraq twice, uh, I look back at my experience, and there were times I can recall, you know, thinking, look, this is hopeless. I'm not sure we're ever going to be able to win this thing. Um, and you know, the losses we took in Iraq, and I, I, I was around, you know, my fair share, but, you know, we would get reports and read of this and that and incident and that and incident and American soldiers getting wounded nonstop and killed. The losses in Vietnam were infinitely larger and, and just so much more on a bigger scale. When you're going through that, that, that whole ordeal, d- did you ever feel helplessness? Yeah, <laughs> I did indeed. Um, and there were, there were times when I just thought, you know, there's no way. Uh, I'm, I'm just high on the, on the adrenaline of having survived. There's no way I'll survive for the next 15 minutes or so. Uh, yeah, and there there were times I think every every infantryman feels uh, helpless at certain times, um, but you've got to convince yourself, and uh, and that comes with experience, that nothing is really hopeless unless you're dead, or you're wounded so badly you can no longer function. Um, you 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 have to be able to say let's go. I mean, look. You guys have been in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, and everything else for 15 years now, uh, rotating in and out. Uh, we were in it for about 10 years in Southeast Asia, um, and some of us did multiple tours. Uh, we generally did one-year tours or 13 months in the case of Marines. Um, and, and a lot of us just said, you know, the hell with it. Uh, I'll just stick around. And, and you did that um, because you knew that, that if, if you didn't, somebody else was going to have to. And they, did, they knew less than you did and, and survived less time than you did. And, 
And so uh, you you kind of nosed it down and and did what needed to be done. I I get it when I when you know when I read uh, stories of firefights in Afghanistan and <clears throat> and Iraq. I mean I I know I, I empathize immediately uh, with those guys and and what they're going through. Different war, different environment, different enemy, um, and and different tactics, but but. That experience, that that eternal spirit of the warrior is the same and has been the same since the first guy crawled out of a cave and picked up a rock and went after the next guy. Uh, that's and that's one of the things I try to to illustrate or show in my films and and television projects. Um, we we are the same guy at heart and in our gut and in our mind. Um, and, and that needs to be understood, I think, by, by the public, um, or at least I think it does, because if it doesn't, we're doing a great disservice to the men and women who wear our uniform and put their lives on the line. You know, you talk about the warrior spirit and the mentality of it, and one thing I can't empathize with, it, look, I went to Iraq, they gave me a Kevlar helmet, they gave me body armor, they gave me knee pads, arm pads, gloves, everything else, all the protection I could muster to at least make me feel yeah. somewhat secure. Everything I know about Vietnam and, and my stepfather was there and every picture I've ever seen, you guys had none of that. You had a helmet. Yeah. It was basically a baseball yeah, helmet you were sure. wearing. Yeah, I mean, I just, uh, I can't fathom the idea of combat with nothing on other than a pistol, like other than a gun. Like it just to me, I didn't grow up in that army, so it, it's so foreign. That never came into your mind and going, you know, this is all they're going to give us to protect ourselves is, a, is, is an M14 or an M16 in that matter? Well, well, we didn't we didn't know about sappy plates and stuff yeah. like that. I mean, you know, we we sometimes we had a flak jacket, um, and Lord knows nobody was going to take enough pity on us to give us elbow or knee pads or or a Kevlar helmet or something that, you know, would would access NDGs and things like that. I, that that was we didn't know it was there, so we didn't miss it. Yeah. Uh, what we understood was that uh, this was. This was the same kind of gear that guys carried in World War II and Korea. So, uh, I mean, they didn't have any of that protection. So why the hell should we? I mean, had we known it was there, had we known it was available, uh, had had uh, military technology advanced to the point where this stuff was there, but we weren't getting it, that would have been a different story. Um, we didn't we didn't miss it because we didn't know that it was available for anybody to have. I mean, you guys. You guys had a, a little bit better luck of the draw, I think. <laughs> to say the least, uh, you know, there is no luck or draw when it comes to combat. But, yeah, we, at least we were better equipped from that standpoint. Dale, you've been awarded the Bronze Star with V for Valor. And for those civilians out there listening, um, it, it's not a Medal of Honor, but it's damn near close. And it's one of those awards that they don't ever hand out capriciously. It's it's A lot goes into the people who get this. And they don't hand out a lot of them. Uh, would you be okay with sharing that story on how you earned yours? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, uh, I'm always a little uncomfortable about talking about it, but um, you know, it was on a, an operation called uh, Ford, like the like the truck or the car, and uh, we were chasing uh, a battalion of North Vietnamese Army uh, troops who who had been pushed by another unit uh, right up toward the, the South China Sea, and uh, they were waiting on boats to come and evacuate them to get to get them out of this trap that they were in. 
Um, what we should have known at that point was that the NBA uh, didn't react well to traps. And they dug in and decided to fight it out to the end. Um, and so we came up on them and hit them head on. And they were dug in hard uh, in bunkers and, and, and well-armed and carrying a lot of ammo. And, and they sort of, as we moved south, they sort of hit us in the left flank. So the whole uh, battalion was turned. This was 2nd Battalion, 3rd Marines at the time. And the whole battalion was turned to the left, and we faced these guys. And um, as, as we moved up toward them, uh, a Marine uh, hit a, um, a, what was called a frag in a can or a fragmentation uh, hand grenade that was uh, in a C-ration can with a tripwire rig. And he hit it, um, and I was about three people back from him and when it went off and it just, uh, tore him up badly. Um, and so I went up and, uh, and dragged him out of there and tried to keep him alive until we could get a corpsman up. Um, it was a guy by the name of Wilson and, uh, we kept him alive until we got a helicopter in, but, uh, he died on the helicopter. Um, but I was, I was under some intense fire as I went up forward to, to drag him out of the line of fire. Um, so, and then we, we moved on into contact, uh, with the NBA that were dug in and, um, you know, being Marines, it was, Hey, diddle, diddle right up the middle. We just went right at them. And, uh, uh, unfortunately I, I got myself, um, trapped out or pinned down, I guess is a better word out in front of the whole line of advance. I'm not sure how that happened, Mark, <laughs> but there I was. <laughs> And I was out there with a machine gunner, and uh, we had some we had some dead laying around us, and uh, and literally the the rest of the company had pulled back to a line of dunes, and we were out fifty seventy five meters ahead of them, and and we couldn't get up and get back. Uh, so I decided, you know, well, uh, what we got to do is fight our way out of this, and and I crawled over to. Uh, uh, a dead man who was carrying a bunch of machine gun ammo and I stripped it off of him and brought it over to the gunner and, and we began to open fire, um, on, on the enemy that were in the bunkers. And, uh, we, uh, you know, I was firing, I was throwing grenades, firing my 45. I was doing everything I could think of to try to get us the hell out of this situation. And, and as it turned out, uh, our fire uh, destroyed a couple of bunkers and, uh, and was, uh, I guess, uh, was uh, effective in, in allowing the rest of the company to advance under our fire. So they got up past us and went in and, and took down the rest of the, uh, the outfits. So I'm, I'm forced to say that it was, it was sort of a dumbass accident. <laughs> but uh, there we were, uh, you know, trapped, trapped out there, and the only way to... to to deal with it was to fight our way out of it. And I was, I was very privileged that, uh, the, uh, commander of the, of the battalion, uh, had observed, uh, that particular action and, and decided that, uh, I rated a decoration for it and he put me in for it. And the commanding general of the fleet Marine force, uh, approved it. And there it was. Two questions for you. One, when you were firing at the bunkers and throwing grenades and everything, doing everything you can, was your intent to fall back to where the company was, or were you trying to continue to push forward at that point? No, no. I wanted to get the hell out of there. <laughs> um, but I had been wounded, and and the machine gunner had been wounded also. And uh, and we knew we weren't going to be able to, to 
you know, do the pick up the gun and hightail it to the rear deal. Uh, so uh, we we just, uh, you know, I had no, I had absolutely no intent on advancing any further than about four <laughs> inches. Um, and and I don't I don't think my gunner, a guy by the name of uh, Daryl Beebe, uh, who was with me at the time, I don't think he had any intention of moving anywhere either, uh, except to the rear. But we were just trapped. We couldn't go forward and we couldn't go back. Um, and so we just decided to you know put out a, a curtain of steel if we could, and you know and if a miracle happened and the sky opened up and and. Uh, the angels came down and said, "You guys are okay." Then we'd run the hell to the rear, but uh, but that wasn't going to happen that day. Uh, second question: uh, the guy who was injured that you were helping. Uh, I mean, you're an infantryman. You, you have some basic life-saving techniques that you're trained on. But what sort of things was he dealing with that you had to do until the corpsman got there to try to keep him alive? No corpsman was going to come anywhere out of oh oh. Um, well, you're talking about the guy who got hit by the fragment of cannon. Yeah, yeah, that guy. Uh, look, the, the fragmentations opened him up like a piccolo. I mean, what I was trying to do, and, and I hope this isn't too colorful, but... No, all the detail, uh, the better. <laughs> his sinuses in his... His sinuses in his face and uh, had all been opened up by frag. And every time I tried to breathe into him... Um, the air would whistle out through those openings, and, and so I had to poke my fingers into the into the frag wounds, you know, kind of play him like a like a piccolo, and uh, and breathe into him, um, and that was really about all I could do for him. I didn't have a unit one. The corpsman had, you know, the medical pack. All I had was a battle dressing, and and I, I didn't know how the hell that would cover. Uh, the places he was open and bleeding from. I just knew that at this point, because of my basic combat first aid training, I knew that I had to get air into his lungs um, and then worry about the bleeding. I had to keep him alive. And uh, when the corpsman came up, of course, then we we switched off. You know, I would do closed chest on him, and, and the doc would breathe into him, and then we one of us would puke and the other one would switch off, and we tried to keep it. We kept him alive until we until uh, uh, the helicopter got in. Uh, it's just a, utterly amazing, and thank you so much for sharing the story. And, you know, for those, again, listening, as Dale said, a lot of people uh, who have received awards aren't comfortable because that's not what we do it for. I mean, you, you, we do with the, the things that Dale did just because it's what our job entails. It's what any of our other buddies would do for us, and none of us do it with the hope that we'll be recognized for it. You do it to save a life of a guy, uh, your battle buddy, whoever it is in combat with you. So I sincerely appreciate you taking the time to share that with us. Yeah, I mean, I mean that that's it's it's that relationship um, between you and the guys on your left and your right, um, which which really is love. And you know, you can say what you will, um, but that's what it is. And uh, and and it's those kind of things that I I always thought were missing in the depiction of us in motion pictures and television. And so when I got into that, those were the things I I tried to teach. And then by teaching, hopefully the they would convey them on screen. And I think in some instances I did that. When you look back at your Vietnam experience, uh, because your military career you know lasted longer than that, do you look back and go, it's just a miracle I survived? Sure. I mean, uh, to this day, uh, there are there are 
you know, after some bad nights, I'll, I'll get up and pinch myself and say, Jesus, did I really survive that? And, uh, um, and, and the neat thing about it is, um, you realize, because you are alive, that you did survive it, um, and you realize that it it really built your life. It it gave you the character to survive virtually any adversity. I mean, um, life sucks sometimes, and and we all know that. We've all been through those things. But if but if you're able to reference back to those times and those moments, it it tends to suck a little less. And uh, and I think that gives you strength to go through, and that's that's what that's the character that surviving combat experience I think builds in men and women who who are fortunate enough to survive it. So after Vietnam, uh, you end up going to officer candidate school after 13 years as in the enlisted ranks, and you get appointed warrant officer. You later become a complete officer and a captain. What was the reason that you made those decisions in your career? I mean, you were a master sergeant. You were the second highest enlisted rank there is. Why the career change, so to speak? Well, it it wasn't entirely voluntary. Um, At that point, uh, in 1975 or thereabouts, uh, the war was winding down enormously, and uh, the Marine Corps and the Army and the Navy and the Air Force and everybody else was was uh, trying to get back on a on a non wartime footing, kind of kind of trying to broom out uh, some of the bad apples that uh, they had been forced to take by wartime personnel demands and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, I was stationed at the First Marine Brigade out in Hawaii at the time. And, um, you know, I was happy as a clam. I was a master sergeant and, you know, the next step up. And I was as high as you're going to go as an enlisted man. And, and I had some really good officers who, who had served with me in Vietnam and, and, uh, or who knew of me and knew of my record. And, uh, and they said, you know, uh, we're going to need a lot of, of junior leaders who are experienced, not guys out of college, not guys out of OCS, but but good, solid, former enlisted Mustang leaders uh, who will help us broom out the bad apples and get back on a on a on a footing uh, where we can pay attention to who we are and what we are and what we need to do. And I said, Oh yeah, well that's uh, probably right. And uh, what does it have to do with me? And they said, well, what it has to do with you is that uh, we think you need to be an officer. And I said, well, um, A, I, I don't have a college degree. Um, and, and uh, you know, I've been going to night school and stuff, mainly because it entertained me. Um, but I, you know, I don't, I don't know that I'm that guy. And I had a, I had a, a regimental commander and a, uh, and a brigadier general uh, who told me in no uncertain terms during a meeting in their office um, what's what's called a command performance while I was at the position of attention that um, <laughs> yes we think you're the you're the kind of guy who is going to help us uh, and we want you to do this um, you can uh, assume that our want is a directive. And I said, Oh, I get it. Aye, aye, sir. And, uh, and so I, I submitted my package and it was promptly approved. And off I went to Quantico officer candidate school and the basic school. So it was, um, you know, I was, I was, 
I have to tell you, I was honored that they thought that much of me. And it was, um, it didn't, it didn't take a whole lot of arm twisting. I, I got it that I was needed to do this. And, and I thought after giving it some, you know, 15 seconds of thought, they're standing at the position of attention, that um, if, if they really wanted me to do this, if they were really pushing me like this, they believed in me. They thought I could do it. And so uh, that was about all the arm twisting I needed. Pretty incredible uh, th- that, you know, it, it got to the level that it did. I mean, when a brigadier general gets involved, obviously it's a, it's a serious matter. But uh, with all that, did you feel different as an officer than you did as an enlisted man? Uh, not after OCS and the basic school. I mean, I had, I had been 13 years as an enlisted man and an NCO that, at that point. So I kind of understood officers. Um, you know, I babysat sufficient number of them <laughs> and, uh, junior officers I'm talking about here. And, and so I got it. <clears throat> I just didn't, I, I hadn't had the opportunity to lead at that level. And so a lot of the stuff I thought about officers, uh, disappeared while I was at Quantico and I, I began to think I began to, began to have these uh, epiphanies, these uh, revelations, and I said, "Oh, I now I understand why they do that. Um, now I understand where they're coming from when they say this, that, or the other sort of thing." Um, and and so it it really I, I welcomed it. I looked at it as an opportunity to uh, lead on a on a broader scale. And with with more authority and more responsibility than than I would have ever had as as an enlisted man, even at the top of the enlisted ladder. So I, I welcomed it. I was uh, once once I understood it, um, I was I was quite happy with the decision. If you had to pick one for your entire military career to redo it over again, would you choose enlisted or officer? Oh, I think I'd I think I'd I'd go the enlisted route again. Yeah, I kind of figured. <laughs> uh, I really do. Um, it's uh, you know it's that's the pointy end of the bayonet and uh, and I like to be up there. So you finally decide that at, after twenty years, twenty one years, your military career is over. W- what was the impetus behind that decision? Well, the impetus actually was Beirut, uh, Lebanon, uh, where I served in nineteen eighty two and nineteen eighty three. That was my second sort of combat rotation. Um, I was with the 2nd Marine Division and sent over there with the battalion landing team. Um, and um, I had I had come out of Lebanon. I'd rotated out of Lebanon after about an eight-month stay um, in the summer of 83 and then in the fall of 83. And I, I knew from my experience in Lebanon that we were in trouble over there. Um, I knew that we were in a political mission, and the politicians were driving the tactics, and I knew that was a disaster as did most of the Marines on the ground over there, but we just couldn't do anything about it. Um, and, and so uh, in October of 83, um, when the uh, suicide bomber hit the Marine barracks, which was actually our BLT command post, um, and killed uh, 241 Marines um, and some soldiers and sailors, I, uh, 
I really had a, a sort of an epiphany. Um, when I was commissioned, I'll go back to Quantico here for a minute. When I was commissioned, I remember on the day that I had finished OCS in the basic school, and I was about to have my bars pinned on my shoulders. And, and uh, I was shaving that morning, and I looked, looked myself in my own beady-ass eyeballs, and I said, look, here's a deal. When the day comes that you can no longer look your Marines in the eye and say, follow me, it is necessary that we die. When that day comes, you should quit. You should quit because then you're no longer the kind of leader that's required here. And, uh, and that day came in, in October of 83. It really sort of broke my, my warrior spirit because I knew that had we been allowed to do it the way we knew to do it and the way we knew was the proper military way to do it, uh, those men wouldn't have died. Uh, and I, I felt that the, the country in its, in its political leadership had let us down. And that really disappointed me. It really hurt me. And so uh, I was fortunate to have a little over 20 years in at that time, and, and I was eligible to retire, and I decided, well, I'll do that. Uh, because I don't know um, if if I get another political mission like that, and I I have to lead men into combat uh, where lives are on the line, I I don't know if I can do it, and so uh, I decided that the honorable thing to do was to um, walk away and uh, and let younger men do it. I've mentioned Mark Bowden, again, who was a previous guest on the podcast, you know, when he talks about Black Hawk Down. He succinctly describes how, you know, after everything that had went wrong and President Clinton had pulled everybody out the next day, that angered so many more troops there than anything because they wanted to go back and finish the job. They felt like it wasn't done. You know, they, they, even though they got the guys that they were going after, sure. the fact that they were yanked out of there the next day was what upset a lot of them the most, and, and Bowden details that. Uh, amazingly, and I just I agree with your sentiment, and we dealt with a lot of that in Iraq too. I mean, we just you can feel, especially in my second deployment towards the end, you can feel the politics of everything. And at that point in time, it makes it very hard for us to do our yeah, jobs. But the point is, is that you know I agree with you wholeheartedly that it's just one of those things where, you know, as you said, we're the tip of the spear. Then let us be that. Don't ask us to be a spoon when we're the tip of the spear, and and that 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 gets frustrating. Yeah. The, the fact of the matter is that, that the, guys, the guys who got out after Somalia, you know, I read some of what they had to say. I read Mark's book. Um, and they would probably still be in and serving, you know, had it not been for that enormous disappointment, that, that political letdown, that political direction. And look, it was, it was there in, in Vietnam also. I mean, the White House was micromanaging what targets we could hit and, and what we could do. Uh, I didn't know about it at the time. I didn't, I didn't realize that because I was an E-5 sergeant, you know, and, and I, didn't, I didn't get the sense of those things. I got the sense of those things later when I was an officer um, and, and was associating in a bit higher level policy uh, levels um, in, in Beirut. So I get it. And we've got to stop that. And I think, interestingly, um, the current commander in chief um, is—he, you know, he may not be experienced in it, but he recognizes it that he has to leave the fighting up to the military people. 
And, uh, and he's done that with Mattis and, and a number of other people. And I applaud that. I think that's the way to go. You know, simply put, the disconnect, I think, with politicians is and what they don't understand and can't understand, because if they haven't been in uniform, they don't know the feeling. But they have to have every single bit as much as intestinal fortitude when it comes to making decision about the men and women they choose to send in battle as the men and women they choose to send in battle. And if they don't, then you are doing a disservice to the people you're leading. And the way you demonstrate that, if you're a civilian in Congress— uh, the way you the way you demonstrate that is by imbuing the trust to do the right thing and to do it in the right fashion in your military leaders. That's what you do. I mean, look, every commission is given with the advice and consent of the Congress. And so everyone who carries that commission uh, carries the the responsibility that's been placed on him by the Congress of the United States of America, and so uh, you you have to be aware of that, and you have to be allowed to function with that responsibility on your shoulders. and And if you don't, then you've you're not doing your job as as uh, part of the uh, um, um, legislative branch. Perfectly said. Amazingly well said. Uh, let's transition to your your movie career at this point in time. So when you get out of the Marine Corps, was what was was there anything driving you to Hollywood saying, "Look, I want to go help make military movies"? How did that come about? Well, I was I was a little bit of a, at a loss. Uh, I went to work early for uh, an outfit called Soldier of Fortune magazine, uh, which I thought would would maybe capitalize a little bit on my my storytelling ability, my journalistic ability, but that. That rapidly turned into a, uh, a major training evolution, you know, kind of a, uh, an overseas military training team. Uh, and I spent most of my time in uh, El Salvador, uh, Nicaragua, or El Salvador, Honduras, and Costa Rica training anti-Sandinista forces. And that, at that point, um, we were up against Daniel Ortega and the, the communist Sandinistas in, in Nicaragua. So uh, it wasn't it wasn't really the sort of thing. And then um, um, Iran Contra went down. Uh, I'm in the weeds here, so your audience hopefully will will understand what that was about. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And those of us who were those of us who were down in Central America at the time, uh, advising and training troops, um, kind of had to drop that like a hot potato and get the hell out of there. Um, because c- congressional oversight was on it and a number of other things. Uh, and so I, I pulled out of there, and then my job was over. And uh, I really didn't know um, what the hell to do with myself. And so I sat down, you know, one of those introspective evenings, and I said, well, what the hell have I got that, you know, I can bring to the table here? I know I, know I don't want to be a cubicle rat in – because I'd end up on a bar stool and kill myself in six months, and and I don't want to be um, a cop. I've been shot too many times to go out and take a chance on America's mean streets, and and uh, and so none of that appealed. To, none of the standard things that retired military guys do appealed to me. And uh, through a long evening of introspection, I I discovered that uh, I I was a huge movie fan. I mean, I'd seen every military movie there was, I think, and the common denominator was that most of them pissed me off. 
they they didn't they didn't get who we were and what we were, how we relate to each other. Um, what what is the warrior spirit? They missed all of that. And so I said, well, you know, uh, maybe there's something there. Maybe maybe I can um, go to Hollywood and unscrew these people. I mean, I had seen, you know, the credit crawls in the movies, and they said they have military technical advisor, and it's, you know, Captain somebody or other, USA retired. And I said, well, if, if they've got a, a technical advisor, how can they be so screwed up? What the hell is going on out there? So, uh, you know, with nothing more than a $2,500 limit credit card, I took off for L.A. And I said, I'm going to find out how this happens. Typical Marine thing. You know, if when you're ignorant, you can do a whole lot of stuff that people tell you you can't do. And so I, I, I came out here that. and started nosing around. And, uh, and uh, what I discovered was that there was, there was a certain attitude on the part of the – and I'm doing air quotes here, the Hollywood establishment, that um, nobody who ever wore a uniform could conceivably have a creative bone in his body. Um, if, if that was the case, you wouldn't you know, have wasted your time serving your country in uniform. There was actually an attitude like that. And, um, and the military advisors that they hired, you know, sometimes were, were somebody's uh, brother-in-law who did six months in the California National Guard and needed a job. I mean, and they woke him up every time they wanted to know which side the ribbons went on, but that was the extent of it. And and I said, you know, I get it here. I'm beginning, the light was beginning to glow above my head. I said, I see what the deal is. What What they need to do is take these actors and train them the way we're trained so that they understand our attitudes, they understand our relationships, they understand the things, they understand our psychology, our psychology, they understand our emotional state, they understand the warrior spirit, and and so I tried to I, I ginned that up into a into a five minute pitch, and I tried to make it, uh, and most mostly I just got arrested and escorted off the lots. You know, it was wow. Uh, they they. The deal was we had made zillions of dollars making war movies without your nonsense. So get lost, kid. And that was essentially the attitude I had. And then, and then the big break came. I, uh, I noticed a small notice in the trade papers. I had learned by this time to read the trade papers, you know, Hollywood Reporter and Daily Variety and that sort of thing. Um, and um, essentially, it said that a heretofore relatively unknown writer-director by the name of Oliver Stone uh, was going to do a, a war story, a war film, uh, based on his own experiences as a combat infantryman in Vietnam. And I said, oh, God, here it is. If I can just reach this guy, he will understand what I'm trying to say. And through, through some machinations that I don't really want to tell you about because the statute of limitations probably hasn't run out, <laughs> uh, I, was, I, was able to, I, was, I was able to reach him, uh, and I called him at his home, and I said, look, uh, you don't know me, I don't know you, but if, if what I read is true, you need me, and here's why. And I pitched him. I said, look, 
nobody the, the problem with most of the military movies is they're done by people who don't get what you and I get from personal experience. So if you'll let me train your actors uh, to be who we were when we were 19, 20, and 21, they, they, will, they will just make this movie sing. And he said, you know, I think you might be right. So we had, a, we had a meeting, and we sniffed around each other, you know, like a couple of dogs. And uh, he decided that I was his guy, and I decided he was my guy at the time. And uh, he gave me 33 actors, uh, including some uh, great actors that, uh, who weren't anything at the time, Johnny Depp, Forrest Whitaker, uh, Tom Berenger, Willem Dafoe, Charlie Sheen. And he, he let me take them for three weeks into the jungle mountains of the Philippines and make them live like we lived. And I developed a training schedule for them, and I treated them like we were in combat. Um, I, you know, they only slept a couple hours at night. They only ate twice a day unless they pissed me off, and then they only ate once a day. Um, <laughs> and, and they carried 65, 70 pounds on their back, and they lived like we did. They dug their holes, and they lived in them. And that was, the, you know, and they took a dump between their combat boots, you know, on the blade of an e-tool, just like we did. Um, and so it, and when I brought those actors down out of the mountains, they were us when we were 19 and 20 in Southeast Asia and it showed, and we put that little $5 million film together and we brought it home and, um, it, it won four Academy Awards, including best picture and best director for Oliver. Um, and he was kind enough to acknowledge my major role in it. And, uh, and so, uh, a lot of what I had been trying to tell people was now, uh, verified. Um, and the neat thing about it for me was that, you know, we were on this major publicity swing because everybody wanted to talk about the movie that won best, best picture and so on and so forth. And, and what I realized at that moment was that we had done something more than just make an award-winning picture. We had done something through the medium of motion pictures, film and television that actually changed society. We had melted some of the ice that had existed for 10 years, for a decade between returning Vietnam veterans and the society they fought for. That, that ice was beginning to melt. People were beginning to go to that movie and say, here's why I won't talk about it. Just look at this movie and you'll understand. And it was, it was magic. I realized that I had lightning in a bottle here. And the fact that the movie had been so successful, um, all of a sudden all those people who were throwing me off the lot a year ago were now calling me and saying, listen, we want you to work on this film, that film, and that film. And, uh, and so that was, that was onward and upward. Nothing succeeds like success in Hollywood. You know, you mentioned the, the reconnection with Vietnam veterans and, and America in general and all the other stuff and, and how hard it was for them to talk about it. And we touched on that at the top of the podcast. You know, why is it so hard for the men who fought alongside you to tell the story that they have? I mean, for those who survived, those brave who lucky ones were able to get out of it all. Why is it so hard for them? Look, unless you are very articulate, 
unless you have a way with language, both written and spoken, you you find it very, very difficult to describe the indescribable to audiences who have no clue, who, 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 who don't even have a basic common denominator with that experience. And so you can butt your head up against a wall and you can revisit all those painful places and try to explain it, or you can just sort of shrug it off and move on, like the people did after World War II, for instance. Uh, and that's that's been the way that most veterans have gone. Now, there are those who have some facility with language, who've written books and so on and so forth. But they don't they don't stand up in front of people and, and talk about that experience much uh, because it's a bit painful, yes, especially if their time and service involved close combat and that sort of thing. Uh, and because it is so very difficult to describe um, when when you've got an audience who, who doesn't speak the same language, in essence. Uh, and so I, I realized that. And and I said, well, I have I have got to – I happen to be facile with language and, and uh, with storytelling. And so I've got to use that talent to bridge that gap. And I've done that. I mean, I've done it in motion pictures. I've done it in television. I've done it in – public speaking and acting, uh, in writing books, um, because I, I feel that's my, my final obligation uh, to my, my oath as a military officer and, and, uh, and, and my duty to the nation. I, I feel it's my responsibility, since I can, uh, to explore those things uh, and to try to explain them and to try to build a common language between the folks who've worn the uniform and, you know, seen the elephant and heard the owl and, and those who haven't. Uh, I think it's, I think it's, that's vital for our nation. I think, I think there is to this day uh, a disconnect, especially now with the all volunteer force. I think, I think there is a disconnect between the people who serve the nation in uniform and the nation that's served. Um, and, and I want to help bridge that gap in any way I can. When you see the way the military members are treated today, you know, I mean, they get acknowledged at sporting events and they're brought to the State of the Union and, you know, everywhere you turn, there's somebody celebrating the military yeah. and what they've done. Is there any resentment? And, I, and listen, let me caveat it by yeah, saying I think it's fair. Yeah, I mean, it would be totally fair from your point of view because you guys were so ignored, but what are your thoughts? Well, initially it pissed me off. Um, and I said, you know, I find myself saying, where the hell were you people? Right. <laughs> and then, and then I back off and sober up for a minute and I say, you know, wait a minute. If, if there's one thing that, if there's one bright element, one bright side to the way we were treated, it's that America recognizes it is a little bit chagrined, a little bit ashamed of it and has made a commitment not to ever let it happen again. So we had to be the fall guys. We had to be the scapegoats. But if we have brought about an appreciation for you guys, uh, then so be it. Then we've, we've done something that's helpful anyway. 
Well, I say thank you, you know, again, for somebody who, who still wears the uniform. When I get my hand shook somewhere and someone says thank you for your service or wants to buy me lunch or whatever, you know, I think about the big picture and everything else. And I'm very appreciative of people who do that. But I'm also cognizant. Again, I told you my, my stepfather was a Vietnam vet of the a generation of, of military folks that were forgotten about uh, for all the wrong reasons and all the political reasons that we discussed yeah. before that had nothing to do with anything that people put the uniform on uh, had to do with. We, we had to do a job and it's what we were told to do. And that was it. And we didn't get a choice whether it was the job that we liked or that the American public liked or anything like that. It was just, it was a job that you guys had to do. And, and for that, I say thank you for, for paving the way uh, for folks of my generation who served to actually be, you know, a, a, appreciated and, and be, grateful for yeah it's, it's interesting here you talk about generations because this uh, this new movie that i'm doing uh in a very non-traditional uh, fashion called no better place to die is a world war ii movie and one of the points i'm trying to make is that that warrior spirit is the same with that generation of world war ii guys as it was in korea as it was in vietnam as it was in iraq and afghanistan um and and I want I want to use that as a showcase uh, to show to demonstrate that uh, to the American public. I, you know, we're we're doing it in a very odd fashion. We're we're not doing it in the uh, in the traditional Hollywood fashion. We're we're raising money um, through a crowdfunding uh, source, and we have made a commitment to use as many real veterans in front of and behind the cameras as we can. I want to demonstrate the talent that's out there uh, that are in the, in the veteran community. Um, and I, I, want to, I want to showcase that. Um, and I want to demonstrate that lineage, that heritage that you've talked about, that extends from those guys who fought uh, in the ETO. And this, this story happens to be about the 82nd Airborne in uh, at uh, on D-Day, who dropped in behind the landing beaches and and held the the access points so that the Germans couldn't come through and and push the Allied uh, invasion forces off into the sea. Um, that's the kind of story, and that's the kind of thing um, that that really needs to be said. And and the important thing about it is, these were these were little guys um, who got misdropped all over the Normandy Peninsula. And they just knew the commander's intent. They knew that they had to take this bridge and causeway, and they had to hold it, or all of the landings might be in jeopardy. So they cobbled it together. I mean, the, the big plan by the generals, you know, the big hands on little maps, that, that all went swirling down the crapper. So these guys just came together and said, this is what we have to do, and we, by God, will do it. And that's the same thing we saw in uh, all over World War II. We saw it in Korea. We saw it in Vietnam. We're seeing it today in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria. Um, and, and I want to demonstrate that. I want to use World War II as the showcase that says, look, um, these guys who did this at Lafayette on D-Day in Normandy are the same guys who are doing it right now today in Helmand Province, uh, or in the outskirts of Baghdad, or uh, you know, overflying Raqqa in uh, in Syria. That's what I want uh, America to understand. And and I, I Hollywood 
Hollywood is not going to do it in the traditional fashion. So I'm going the other route. I'm trying to, to create buzz. I'm trying to create a groundswell of populist support because I think if, if our last election demonstrates anything, Mark, it, it says that Mr. and Mrs. America in flyover country, you know, somewhere between the elitists in New York and L.A., are tired of being ignored. They're tired of not hearing their voice uh, or not having their voice heard. And it, it's not only in politics, it's entertainment and all other aspects of life. So I want to capitalize on that. And what we're discovering uh, through our fundraising efforts is, is that there's a huge, huge populist audience out there that says, yes, we want you to do this. This is our kind of film. This is the spirit of America. This is what we want to see. Um, and so, and so I'm, I'm hoping that, that that populist support will attract the big money. You know, they'll say, whoa, wait a minute, that's guaranteed butts in the seats. Let's give these guys what they need to do this movie and, uh, and capitalize on it. And it's, it's really that simple. Well, I love the idea, and uh, I applaud your effort, certainly, and I wish you nothing but success uh, as far as the movie is concerned. Look, your military career is heroic. It's one of a kind. Your post-military career is one in a million. Um, but with all that said, you know, uh, <laughs> I, I think I think we're, we're you know I'm so I feel so blessed to have you on this podcast because, uh, you know, with someone like you, it just it, it helps connect a lot of generations and connect a lot of dots that people don't understand. And even for people in uniform, sometimes we even get tunnel vision about our careers and, and looking forward and forgetting to look back. And I think that's so important. I don't yeah, think we sure do that do. enough. I, I understand that. So I just wanted to say thank you so much. Well, you're welcome. And thanks for having me. I mean, uh, you've, you've got an audience of kindred spirits and, and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to them. Dale Dye, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Okay, Mark, thanks very much. It's good to talk to you. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.